The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. holy word through human vessels. As I read Luke 16, 1 through 13, Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. He called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people will receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. And if you then who have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word. You can use your money, Jesus seems to say, to win friends, or you could even use it to make enemies. The latter was accomplished a few years ago, I think it was about four or five years ago, by a player with the NBA basketball team, the Minnesota Timberwolves. I'm going to conceal his name to protect the guilty. His first name starts with L. I'm going to call him Larry. That's not his name. This nearly seven-foot-tall sports star announced several years ago to the media that he was disgusted with his one-year $14.6 million contract with the Timberwolves. He demanded a new contract with much publicity and bluster. And of course, he wanted more money. But it got even worse. In a news conference, a reporter challenged him and said, Larry, 
Why don't you consider giving your all, your 100% to this team, and help them win the NBA championship? And when you've done that, have the contract negotiation, and maybe everybody'd agree that you are worth more. And Larry stated this on camera, word for word, what he said. Why should I want to help this team win anything? They're not doing anything for me. I put my body at risk in every game, and I've got a family to feed. Well, I took my calculator, and folks, if you divide up poor, impoverished Larry's $14.6 million by 200, 200 households would have $77,000 a year on which most of us could certainly make a living. And I think we could get groceries out of it too. It's too bad that Larry doesn't know how to do that. When money becomes your God, you're never going to feel that you have enough of it. Rather than using it properly, using it with unselfish sharing to help others in your society, your family, for a Christian, using it unselfishly for the work of God, you will live like Larry, absolutely oblivious to what money is really given you for. And when death comes, what is $14.6 million really going to amount to? In the last two weeks, you've heard from Luke 15, proper attitudes towards people, people who are lost in one way or another. And The message came through pretty clearly that God values and loves those who are lost, unlike that older brother who actually despised his lost brother. Well, now in 16, Jesus is turning from attitudes towards people to attitudes towards things, material things. I hope to guide you rather quickly, first of all, into a proper interpretation of the parable, the unusual parable that Jesus told in verses 1 through 8. There's, there's something that's important if you're really going to understand this the right way, and many people never see it. And then I want to bring you the three applications that Jesus himself gave to this parable. The so-called unjust steward or the dishonest manager, whichever title you use, shows us something unusual. And if you just look at it quick, you can say, Jesus is praising a dishonest person. That seems strange. And yet he's not praising his dishonesty. He's praising his sharp thinking, his shrewdness, his quick-witted way of reacting to a crisis and finding a way to actually sacrifice something short-term for a longer-term goal. Let's, let's look a minute. I want to show you, not that I have superior wisdom, but there's, a, there's something to know. And, and various scholars and cultural sources tell us this that helps us unlock a puzzle about the dishonest steward, and it makes a lot more sense. Here's a property manager for an absentee landlord. He probably rented properties he had, various businesses or residents lived in those properties. He may have had farms that people farmed for him and owed him their share of of what was produced. And he didn't deal with the nitty-gritty. He was far away. He let the manager, the steward, collect things. Now, there's no question that apparently the manager was dishonest in the initial sense, verses 1 and 2. 
he was called to account for, quote, wasting the possessions. He had his hand in the till or something. He was doing something dishonest. The interesting thing is he makes no protest about being fired. He doesn't say, oh, I'm innocent. Let me tell you. No, he was probably guilty. And the word came, and I picture this, this rich man, get Donald Trump in your picture. You're fired. Doesn't Donald love to do that? He didn't say you're going to get a trial. You're going to get a chance to explain yourself. You're fired. Be ready to turn the books over. He sent his message, I'm coming to collect the keys to the office. Now, where we differ from the way some interpret this, if you understand from that point on that the man committed further crimes against the landlord and stole further money from him in what he did, I think you have the wrong understanding of this. There are those who understand this, and I side with them completely, and it's a well-documented interpretation, that you have to understand something that was going on here, although it's not spoken in the text. And that is how a manager or a steward made his living in those days. It's a little bit like a waiter or waitress today. You get paid a relatively low salary in a restaurant, but you depend on tips. You depend on the extra that's going to come, and maybe you can do well if you give good service, but you won't do that well from the salary. Same with the steward. They didn't get great salaries. But the system, well-documented, that was in place in the first century expected and sort of informally allowed a steward to dip in and exact from the customer whatever he could get. If a hundred bushels of something was owed, he'd say, the bill is 125. Or maybe he was more daring. The bill is 150 or whatever. Whatever he could extract by coercion, by the strength of his personality, by something, threats, he was allowed to keep anything above the amount owed to the owner that he had to pay. And the owner looked the other way. He didn't really care. If this guy got 10%, he got 50%. Big commissions were collected. If you were a strong personality and forceful enough, you could do really well as a first century steward in Middle Eastern culture. This is well documented that this was done. So put yourself in the place of this man. You've been told you're fired. You don't have a job. You've had a cushy job where you can almost help yourself and and make a lot of money. All of a sudden, what am I going to do? I'm not qualified for too much else. I've got a lot of enemies in this town. I can't dig ditches. I won't beg. What will I do? Maybe I can use the small opportunity I have to ingratiate myself to some of these whom I've even been gouging who will be very happy to have their bills discounted as I take off my exorbitant commission. And that's exactly what he did. He went to these folks and said, rewrite your bill. He was not stealing more from the owner. He was taking off his part. When you understand it that way, this parable makes a great deal more sense. Why would the master commend a man for stealing from him again and again and again? He didn't. He commended him for being shrewd enough to give up something that was his own to make a longer-term gain and hopefully get some friend who would say, hey, I've got a clerk's job over here. You just help me out a great deal. You can be my clerk. Why would Jesus commend this man if all he's commending is dishonesty? We believe he's commending, rather, his fast thinking, his ingenuity, and his self-sacrifice. It fits. The story makes 
better sense. Well, that's really all I intend to say by way of an actual comment on the parable. It's an unusual parable. What we find here now from verses 9 to 13 are several levels of application. A lot of times in sermons we hardly get to the application. Today it's mostly application because Jesus made these. And I'm going to make three statements of application that I think are embedded here. First is that Jesus is saying, by way of a practical application of the lesson, that we too ought to make eternal friends through our kingdom generosity. Now you could put it this way. It's as if believers in Jesus Christ have insider knowledge about the history of the world. You probably know that on Wall Street, insider trading is a big no-no. If you do it, you'll go to prison. That is, if you know what's going to happen in a company next week or Wednesday or something, and you, you have that inside knowledge and you trade and position yourself to make a big killing on stock of that company, whoa, watch out. You're going to be in big trouble if you're caught. And yet, isn't it interesting that in a sense, the Christian has insider knowledge of history. We know how history ends. We know where history's going. We know that every material thing there is 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 absolutely transitory. It's written on paper that's going to be burned up, whether it's our money, whether it's title deeds to our homes, or anything else. We know that Christ is coming, and God's purposes in history are all pointed to his glorious return and the establishment of the eternal kingdom, into which we will come with a face-to-face relationship to our God if we know Christ. All right, then. If we have insider knowledge, why are we not regulating our financial lives, the way we use our talent, the way we invest our time, what we do in our leisure, and everything else in light of the plan of God that we know is true? The rest of the world doesn't know it. They're all short-sighted. They think everything has to be pumped into staying alive right now, being as healthy as you can right now. You know, the man who dies of the most toys wins. They just don't know. They don't have the knowledge of the revelation of God about where the world is going. We do, and we ought to be regulated in the way we behave, even in the use of our wealth and our possessions. As Jesus says here, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the sons of light. And then he went on to say this strange thing. It sounds strange when we first hear it. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so when it fails they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What fails? The money, your life. Everything that's part of this temporary world is going to fail. If you don't think so, you're a fool. And are you thinking about what happens when it fails? Now, some people will read this verse 9 at the most crass level, and they were saying, this sounds odd. Is Jesus saying we can buy our way into heaven? And if we help enough people in the world, we're going to have, you know, sort of this reception committee who's going to say, okay, let him in, Lord. He was a good guy. He helped. No. How could this contradict everything we know about the gospel of God's free grace by the cross and resurrection of Jesus? We know what the gospel is. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's not by buying anything. 1 Peter 1.18 says, You were bought not out of your empty way of life, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Salvation isn't for sale. God's word doesn't contradict itself like that. 
Look and see that Luke 16.9 is part of a, a section that begins in 16.1 being spoken to disciples. To those who are already committed to the way of faith in Christ. And now are being taught, well, how do you live this life once you know that heaven will be your inheritance? Not how do you get there by paying the right amount to St. Peter at the gate or some stupid idea like that, not even biblical. What does a disciple do with his money that will even have an impact on those who greet him when he comes into eternity? Jesus was discussing stewardship. Using our material belongings, our savings, our salaries, like seed put out there to grow and sprout and produce a kind of eternal crop. Matthew 6.20 has Jesus speak about storing up treasure in heaven. Did you ever think about what that means? Did you think it means a bank account? What did he mean, treasure in heaven? I think that's related to this verse. The idea that people will be redeemed by the grace of God through ministry on earth, whether proclamation ministry of evangelism or church building ministry or ministries of mercy through hospitals and reaching out to people in their brokenness, people will be affected in eternal ways. And you're going to see this and appreciate this when you come into the eternal kingdom. Exactly 30 years ago, my ministry was in Amherst, New York, a suburb outside of Buffalo. I was planning a new church in my home area where I'd grown up. Started with 12 people in a living room. Didn't even have the wherewithal to completely pay my salary. So my salary was supplemented for the first two years by our denomination through its Mission to North America agency. And that meant that there were hundreds of Presbyterian Church in America congregations that were giving to the Mission to North America that didn't know me, but they were giving to me, not just me, but to that fledgling congregation, allowing me to be there to preach, to witness, to be a pastor. It also means, because of what I know about this church and its history, that you were involved with me. You didn't know me, you'd never heard of me, but you were supporting me. That's a great thing, isn't it? Here we were, we hadn't met, but God and his network of support was doing a work in western New York supported by you. Walter Cronkite in the 1950s had that program. Remember how Walter, with his round tone, said, and you are there. You were there. Well, let me just give you a little slice of that ministry. We spent eight years there. A lot happened. A lot of lives touched. A lot of things took place. I want to just give you a little slice of what you did. I'm thinking of a young man influenced by that ministry named Brian. Brian was a graduate student at the State University of New York at Buffalo, studying for a Ph.D. in engineering, showed up at our door, worship service, told of a nominal church background. He kind of, I know I ought to be in church, is about where he was spiritually. Brian was one of those surprising ones who fell from the tree like ripe fruit. His life just blossomed as a Christian disciple in a very short period of time. We watched him. He just lit up. He loved to study the Bible. He loved to understand it. And he God's spirit worked in him in a beautiful way. Not too long after, Brian said, you know, I've been dating this young lady, Esther. She's Jewish. I've been witnessing to her. I've been telling her, and she's interested in the gospel, but boy, she's getting pressure at home uh, to not date me. I would like to marry her. But, but he came to see me, and he said, Pastor, 
Well, I understand correctly. I shouldn't marry somebody who's not a Christian. Is that right? I said, right on, Brian. That's what the scripture says. Why don't we pray together for Esther? Well, this is one of those happily ever after stories because Esther came to Christ not too long after that. It was a beautiful thing. I remember the, the tears of joy several of us had when I baptized Esther. I've sort of lost track of them, but I do know Brian and Esther live in West Virginia and are leaders in a church. You were there. Your gifts were there. You were planters of those seeds that multiply, that grow. Think of Brian and Esther's children. Think of people they might teach or influence now as they're in ministry and in a church. This is Right to Life Sunday. This church supports different Right to Life ministries, prominently Bethany Christian Services. Does any of us know the name of a young woman who perhaps through the Council of Bethany Christian Services decided in the last 10 days not to take the life of her baby, the unplanned pregnancy she has? I don't know her name, but I'll tell you, I'm just about sure there is such a person. If not 10 days, stretch it whatever you want. There is somebody like that. And we were there. We supported that. We helped make that possible. Do you see how this multiplies out in millions of ways? You, you spread it out. You look at all those 60 different missionary agencies and couples that we support and individuals. Places like Hungary, Romania, Germany, Quebec, Peru. It, it's dazzling what God is doing. The city of Lancaster, your neighborhood. God is at work. You say, oh, we just give this money. It just sort of facelessly goes out as, as missionary money, and we don't see what it's... Is it doing anything? Oh, my friends, you're going to see what it's done someday. The lines of accountability of what that investment was is going to be plain to you in the day when we know all things, even as they are known and as we, we are known by God. Now, we are going to behold what I might call the Heavenly Welcoming Committee. You're going to meet Brian and Esther and say glory to God. I never met you before, but I helped the pastor be there that helped you, that by the agency of the Holy Spirit, you came to Christ. It's going to be awesome. Secondly, and much shorter, the second application Jesus says here in verses 10 to 12, that we prove our faithfulness to him in small but sequential ways. That's what he was showing us in this steward. If you've been faithful in little things, you'll be trusted with more. What did this steward do? Sure, he'd done a lot of skullduggery and maybe outright dishonesty in the past, but he thought, I can do some small things that can make a difference. We don't know whether they did. We don't know whether he got a job from these people. That isn't the point. The point is that he was willing to sacrifice something that he could have called his own in order to see a greater gain. Are we ready to understand that it's the small things we're doing in our lives that make a difference over the long term? I was just considering, I'm probably going to preach next Sunday, step aside from Luke and preach from 1 Timothy on the qualifications of officers of the church as we ordain and install, hopefully, in that service. But I was thinking about, you know, what is it that the Bible requires of officers, since you're going to vote on some this afternoon? Does it say, church, you need good elders. So go and find eloquent preachers, great philosophers, 
and deep, profound theologians to be your elders. If 1 Timothy 3 says that, it's not in my version, what does it say? It says, find men of integrity, men who day by day are trusted for their word, do honest work when nobody's looking, are faithful to their wives, they have a good reputation, they tell the truth, and in those little things, you see people who can be trusted with greater things, with leadership, with responsibility, with big decisions. I think that's what Christ is telling us about our stewardship. Sometimes I hear people when we talk about stewardship, they say, oh, well, okay, thanks for the message. Right now I'm a student, so that sermon didn't apply to me. I just have a part-time job and student loans and, hey, pastor, I don't have any money, so you're not talking to me. Oh, pastor, you don't understand. I'm, I'm retired. I'm on a fixed pension. Oh, pastor, you don't understand. I, I'm only able to have a two-thirds kind of job that really doesn't take advantage of my ability. So, you know, thanks for preaching about stewardship, but it doesn't apply to me. It absolutely does apply to you. Jesus says, whatever's in your hand. Sure, somebody else has got more in their hand than you do, but whatever's in your hand, you're asked to be faithful with that. You're asked to be generous with that. You're asked to see it as seed that can change lives. As the kingdom of God is going forward and souls are coming to Christ and broken people are being bound up in a variety of ways. We prove faithfulness to him in our small ways. And then finally this morning, with verse 13, Jesus concludes this section with a stark challenge as he says, choose your master. No servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. You think you can. You think it's about serving God on Sunday and money six other days or five other days, Jesus says no compartmentalization like that is possible. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on this, and if I did, I don't think I'd see any, but what if I asked the question and, and did ask for a show of hands and said, would you raise your hand if your God is money? How many hands do you think would be up? Any? There might actually be such an honest person among us, but I don't think too many. You see, we all think, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm not just a Christian. I'm a conservative Christian. I'm a conservative, evangelical, reformed, Presbyterian Christian. So I don't serve money. Why did Jesus address this to his 12 disciples who walked with him if he didn't think they needed to hear this? He wasn't talking to the worldly crowd of people who had no sense of the kingdom. He's talking to disciples, and he said, look, be very careful that you're not under the domination of money and materialism, and you can be just as easily when you don't have it as when you do. Something is controlling you. Something is your predominating love. It's the prize of your life, and all your obedience of actions and planning and parceling out where your dollars go, whether consciously or unconsciously, are in service of that. What is it? Is it actually God or are you kidding yourself? Is it actually money? The Son of God says it's a blunt alternative. And he expects his people to become distributors of worldly goods, whether it's a little bit 
Maybe you're that student, and boy, you're, you're just making it. You know, you can just cover the room rent and the books and whatever it is you've got. He said, boy, there isn't much left. What are you doing with a little bit? Not that's left, but what's God's part of it in the first place. Are you using your resources to build the kingdom of God or the kingdom of me? A human heart has capacity for one dominating love at a time. We all need to face this. Who's our master? Really? Who is it? Is it that glittering car that I wish would be standing in the driveway? And I'm really sacrificing everything to see somehow that it gets there? Is it that retirement fund that I'm just fretting and fuming and going crazy to try to build up and it's not going anywhere right now and boy, I'm really worried about how in the world God's ever going to take care of me when I retire? Or are you a person that says, God's given me certain things. He wants them to be invested wisely and shrewdly. He'll give me enough for me. But he's got ideas about where the investment can be made that I'll come to eternity and see things I never dreamed were going on at all that he was accomplishing. I quote the missionary martyr Jim Elliott. His phrase has probably been the one thing from his life that has stuck most with many people, and you've heard it before, but it's always timely. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to save what he cannot lose. I pray God, you'll look at your convictions on these things and act in kingdom generosity and invest so that you'll see the result when you come before the Lord. Our Father, I pray, not for the coffers of Westminster Church, but for the lives of these people, that we would be obedient. We would not kid ourselves and say, I am. Oh, yes, God, I'm worshiping God. He's got it all. He's my master. You've said that you could tell by looking at our checkbook ledger or our bank card statement. May it be able to be read there. And may we be able to rejoice one day when we see what you've done in a tremendous harvest of lives affected for the kingdom. We praise your name. Amen.